from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. If we see, you know, Joe Biden's ahead by 10 points in every poll in Michigan, then yes, Joe Biden is ahead. And if he loses that, the polls were definitely wrong. But if we see Joe Biden ahead by four points on average, and Donald Trump ends up being able to squeak out a win by uh, 10, 15,000 votes in Michigan, then the polls were not necessarily wrong. It's only the depiction of the polls that the media was saying, Joe Biden's definitely going to win this based on a bunch of polls that only had him up by three or four points. What you gonna do about it? That was Patrick Murray, founder of the most respected polling institute in the country, Monmouth University. As we crawl toward this election, we're all going to be inundated with newscasters quoting poll after poll, pre-debate, post-debate, about this issue or that candidate. We watch incessantly while these newscasters tell us about our own collective opinions. They give us the impression that the poll is a picture of likely results on Election Day. But we all remember 2016, with an election night surprise between Clinton and Trump. Polls are just a snapshot from yesterday. Voting plans change at the very last minute. So thanks to our producer, A.J. Mosley, we're revisiting Patrick Murray and his clear view of polling, how to use them, and how not to be influenced by them. Where do all these statistics come from anyway? How are they sourced, counted, kept honest? I can't think of a more appropriate subject to revisit for this episode of Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Patrick, how did you get started in this racket? Well, the story that my grandmother tells is that uh, I started when I was about four years old, uh, riding a bus into Philadelphia. And I sat at the front of the bus and I asked everybody who got on the bus if they liked the bus. But I learned my first lesson about how you bias a poll by following up that question before they answered with saying, I like the bus. So I am telegraphing to them what the correct answer is. So automatically from the, from the age of four, I was learning how to ask questions and how not to ask questions. But seriously, the most formative experience that I had, which was I was, I was doing a semester in Washington, D.C. as an undergraduate, and I saw this ad in the city paper there and walked in, and it was a pollster. Peter Hart was the, the Democratic pollster. I didn't know whether Democrat, Republican, I had no idea. What I did know uh, was that I was calling and talking to voters in Hawaii and Michigan and Wisconsin and Arkansas and a whole post of interesting places and asking them questions. And I, I realized I was pretty good at that. And I went to Rutgers University where they had one of the foremost state level polls at the time, the Eagleton poll, which started in 1971. And I walked over there one day and just said, I'm interested in practical politics. I'm interested in this stuff. Uh, when I read it in, in the academic literature, you got anything for me to do? And they said, yeah, we got this little project. We just need some help with if you want to do it. And that was it. From that point on, I, wasn't going, I was not going to be a political science professor. I was going to be a pollster. What happened was as I progressed as a pollster, that experience that I had as an interviewer, talking to people and understanding the interaction that uh, you have when you're trying to get people to tell you their honest opinion, informed me much more than any of the academic work in many ways uh, that I did along the way. How could you tell at the time, Patrick, that you were getting an honest opinion as opposed to the opinion they thought they should give you? How do you create a control for people that are not actually giving you honest answers when you realize that you're getting kind of a load from someone because they're telling you what they think you should be hearing rather than what they're thinking? 
That's a, yeah, that social desirability bias is important. That's one of the things that I, I said you really need to develop an ear to understand that, you know, a question that you ask may not be as uh, innocuous as, as you think. I'm going to give you a, an example from a poll that we just released, which is before COVID hit, were you planning to take a trip for summer vacation? Seems innocuous, right? A yes or no answer. So uh, we got a number, 63%, that was in line with numbers that we had gotten from past years. And of course, we've you know, when we ask follow-up questions, we find that, that fewer people are actually going to take that vacation. That was the purpose we asked him. When we actually looked at how the responses were given by party, Democrats were significantly more likely, 76% or so of Democrats said that they were planning a vacation, which was more than we'd seen for Democrats in the past. But by the same token, only 40-some percent of Republicans said they were planning a vacation, which would mean before COVID hit, 2020 was going to be the lowest year for Republicans taking a vacation in a year in history. Now, that's, there's no way that that's true. What happened was we were asking that question within a series of other questions asking about the impact of COVID. This is a huge problem that we've been facing and has been growing over the past decade, is that almost everything now is viewed through a partisan lens. So that when you get a question, you first are thinking about, well, what does this say about my belief system, rather than simply, you know, do, am I going to do this or not going to do this? And so Republicans who want to defend President Trump want to say, hey, I wasn't planning a vacation because, you know, to let you know that COVID hasn't changed my plans. I had COVID, there's not been a big impact where more Democrats are saying, I did plan a vacation and, and COVID and, and the response of the Republicans and President Trump are what caused me not to be able to take this vacation. Now, when we actually drilled down, we had a bunch of follow-up questions. By the time we got to the follow-up questions about what you actually are going to do, that partisanship disappeared because we were now anchoring it in real behaviors that they said they were going to do tomorrow. Interesting. One of the things I think distinguishes me from another from other pollsters is that I go out there and... I actually talk to people. Um, you know, I listen in on conversations. This is like how you understand how people talk about things, not by imposing your academic view on how the world should work, but on actually how people talk about them, the vernacular that they use. And I found that when I go out to places like Iowa and New Hampshire in the throes of these presidential primaries, I am able to get people to come out of their shell because they don't know what I think. I'm able to present in a way that whatever you're about to tell me I don't have a judgment on, or maybe you even think that I probably will agree with you. I found people saying things to me in those situations that they probably would not say if I had walked up with a TV camera where they were automatically going to say, well, I have to defend President Trump or I have to knock President Trump and defend the Democrats, whatever it happens to be. So let's dive into a polling situation that we all remember. What lessons did we learn from the 2016 Clinton-Trump election? Well, one of the things that I learned is that uh, the media doesn't really understand the error associated with polling. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I looked at is the total error, particularly in the states that were competitive. And so let's say we have 15 states that are the most competitive states. Well, the error in 2016 across those states was no different than the error it was in 2012. And overall, the error in 2016 at the state level was only slightly higher than it had been on average. What happened was what the, the error was off enough in a few states that it changed the electoral vote outcome, whereas in 2012, it did not do that. So the errors that are inherent in the polling did not change what our expectations were going into the election. That was the key. The same amount of error was there. It was just our expectations were held up even with the error in 2012, but they were 
expectations were not met in 2016. When you polled for 2016, did you poll based on the Electoral College or did you poll based on popular vote? We polled based on popular vote. If you're going to do Electoral College, you do a 50-state poll which means you have to have a large enough sample size in all 50 states. So you're focused on those 15 states. But what happens is if the 15 states that are most competitive are close, then the polling errors are going to, uh, potential errors are going to be exacerbated. And that was the problem that we found. The public had shifted in terms of how they voted based on their educational level. In the past, the difference between voters with a college degree and voters without a college degree didn't matter all that much. Now, starting in 2016, it mattered. And because we didn't have a proper weight in our voter list to weight education, a lot of pollsters didn't weight by education. But that only accounted for about one or two points of the total error. We're talking about a four-point error overall. We found that more of our likely voters who said they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton decided to stay home uh, than Trump voters. Uh, and that accounted for a point or two. Uh, these are things that you can't predict in a poll. And, th- and that was my big problem with the polling error in 2016 was not so much about the polling. It was about the number of articles out there that use the word predict. Polls don't predict anything. Polls tell you what things are at the time you take the poll. Now, the fact that polls are fairly accurate in terms of elections is because very little usually changes between the time a poll is taken and the election, if you're talking about a poll that's taken within a week of the election, that pretty much the die is cast. And that's why polls are accurate, not because they're predicting what will happen, is because what was the lay of the land on the day the poll was taken didn't change by the time we got to the election. And that's why polls aren't then in and themselves predictive. It is, they just tell you what is at the time. And as long as things aren't volatile in the last few days, and that certainly was not the case in 2016, then you're not going to get changes. And what happened is we had a volatile election, we had enough people moving around, and we had a number of polls that had the race in these key states within five points. And all that said was, well, this is gonna be a close race, and it looks like Hillary Clinton's ahead, but you shouldn't put all your money on that because we know that things are going to be changing between now, the time we took the poll, and election day. Is it possible that in 2016, people weren't really willing to admit out loud that they were thinking of voting for Trump? There were some of those people. And I had looked at my poll, particularly in Pennsylvania. What we discovered was in urban areas and suburban areas, which made up about two-thirds of of Pennsylvania, we had the results dead on. When we compared our results in, in those counties versus what we had in the poll, They were dead on. Where we were off was in the rural part of Pennsylvania. What we found is not people were, people weren't lying to us about how they were going to vote, that the Democrats who were going to vote for Trump or the lean Democrats who were going to vote for Trump weren't talking about it. So they were less likely to answer a poll than they had been in the past. And what we found from doing our follow-up work was it wasn't just about answering poll questions. They actually weren't talking to their family members (laughs) about how they were going to vote. They didn't want to hear it. We already are seeing there's some of that still exists today. We have to factor that in. But as I said, that's only 1%. Now, if we're talking about a couple of different factors that that are 1% or 2%, and they add up to 4 or 5%, but you don't know which ones are at play at which particular time, the key thing that we need to do is to get the media to start saying when a a 4 or 5-point poll or a bunch of 4 or 5-point polls come in is that saying there's still error around this. While it looks like it's leaning towards Biden or leaning towards Trump, there still is enough error around this that we can only characterize this as a close election. There is unknowns. There are, there's error and unknowables 
inherent in polling. And we need to be more cognizant about that and talk about that a little bit more. Look, if we see, you know, Joe Biden's ahead by 10 points in every poll in Michigan, then yes, Joe Biden is ahead. And if he loses that, the polls were definitely wrong. But if we see Joe Biden ahead by four points on average, and Donald Trump ends up being able to squeak out a win by uh, 10, 15,000 votes in Michigan, then the polls were not necessarily wrong. It's only the depiction of the polls. The media was saying Joe Biden's definitely going to win this based on a bunch of polls that only had him up by three or four points. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'd like to talk to you about that particular subject and how you're dealing with 2020 when the people who actually vote are going to be a little up in the air. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? We're back with Patrick Murray, Monmouth University Polling Institute, and Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht. So... Patrick, we were talking about what happened in 2016, and now as we get to 2020, there are a lot of interesting factors that you've probably not been dealing with before, like the pandemic, how it's going to affect people actually leaving their homes and voting, where you can have a mail-in ballot and where the mail-in ballots might not happen. How are you controlling for that? We don't know yet, because I'll be honest with you, we we stopped our state-level polling as the pandemic hit. Uh, we were polling in the Democratic primary. Uh, we polled Michigan in early March and then Arizona. And Arizona and Michigan, our poll was great. But Arizona, what happened was between the time we polled and the time the election happened, which was only a couple of days between them, is that there was a huge shift in people not showing up to vote in person uh, because of the unrolling pandemic. And more people voted in, by mail or by drop-off than had voted ever before, but the people that we had in our poll, many of them who were going to vote in person just simply did not vote. And so we dropped our, our polling at the state level because of that. Uh, so the, the larger question is, okay, so what are you going to do about this? And I said, part of it was we don't know yet because the states haven't told us exactly how they're going to run the election in November. Because we, we already know from our past polling that in March that this is going to be a big issue. What can we learn from the polls? How can we use what you learn as a way to change our actions so that we can make sure that this is more of a long-term change rather than this week's fad? Well, what we do know about how people behave is that they close off their willingness to engage in new discussions when fear is involved. And that has been the case in every past situation is, yes, this is a problem, but I need to protect myself. Well, the president's rhetoric plays on that fear. It has had actually had the opposite effect because he hasn't done what other past politicians have done, which is acknowledge that there's some sort of ephemeral problem out there and we're going to do something unnamed to address it. But 
the violence that these people are, are using to express their, their point of view will undermine your safety and security in the neighborhoods where you live. What Trump is just saying is their behavior is bad and everybody's behavior who's supporting them is bad. So they're putting all these white people in the same boat with, with the black people who are protesting and other people of color are protesting. And so white people are now saying, wait, he's calling me the, the enemy. So he's not having the effect of uh, promoting fear among them. Uh, he's actually promoting, pushing them into solidarity. Ironically, probably one of the things that, that can happen here is for Trump to continue what he's doing in this rhetoric because it's, it's pushing those people who are willing to have said that they're willing to, to engage in this conversation to continue to engage in this conversation. Now, the thing that you, you don't want to do is you want, don't want to divert attention. As I mentioned, you don't want to divert attention and dilute what this, this is all about. I mean, this is about systemic racism, which has been a scourge for our country since slavery. And so if you, you want to make sure that you continue to concentrate on that. Can you tell us how your polls have gauged the effect of the pandemic on the next elections? And have you been able to test that at all? Less about predicting what's going to happen in an election versus what we actually saw in terms of moving the needle. Uh, Trump got an initial bump in his approval rating in March because there's this rally effect. People want to be able to rally around the leader. Again, this goes back to fear. When, when there's an attack on us, and, and this pandemic is an attack on our security and our safety, and you want a strong leader to be able to do that. What's interesting was why he got a bump. He got nowhere near the bump that our state governors got, that other foreign leaders got in their own countries, because the opinion about Trump is baked in. So what we found is there's a lot of polling out there that said, oh, older people who are more susceptible to the virus uh, are turning against Trump because of his response to COVID. What I, when I looked at the poll, I said, well, no, these, change, these differences existed before COVID. What they're only doing is reinforcing what people already thought about President Trump. Whether you like him or dislike him, it, it had a reinforcing effect. You know, the impression I think a lot of us have is that funding can affect a poll's outcome. Does it matter who's paying for the poll? I guess it does. I mean, we don't do paid polls, so... Uh... It's not so much that they bias their polls when they do that, but when you're dealing with a client, it actually comes out in the, in the questions that you ask and the questions that you choose not to ask. That is where I tend to see the bias. It's not in the, in the, in the results themselves, but in let's avoid this part of the issue seems to be the bigger bias. That's interesting that you said you, you don't charge for your polling. So um, how does Monmouth University get its funding for this? So Monmouth University is doing this as a public service. Uh, this is one of the areas. Uh, we have a, a number of other research institutes. Uh, we have uh, something called the Urban Coast Institute, uh, for example, that does research on the urban environment, the interaction of public policy and science. And you know, we do that in order to take the expertise that we have inside the university and share it outside the university. So this is one of the things that Monmouth does. Now, obviously it also helps to give Monmouth publicity and people hear the Monmouth name and that's always good because every college spends money on marketing and communications. So this is one of the ways that we do some of that as well. Interesting. So being that we've only got a few minutes left, I can't help but ask you if right now you had to lay down a bet based on the polls that you've put out there and the trends you've watched over the last two decades, can you call our next election? No, presidential no, absolutely election? not. Absolutely. You're not even going to take a stab at it. 
no way in hell. And then, in fact, um, uh, and I don't take this personally, Bill, but I'm, I'm offended by that question. Um, and <laughs> because I, I, this, is, this, is, this is my bugaboo, is that polls do not predict. I don't predict. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen. I get these questions from, from reporters all the time. Well, what does what happened yesterday mean for four months down the line? I have absolutely no clue because if I did, I'd be using that money to go bet on the horses or, or you know, or play the lottery, not to, not to do polling. Patrick, do you mind if we do just a rapid fire asking your opinion of the following subjects? I'd like you to rank them one to 10, 10 being highest, whether or not your polls have revealed that these issues may or may not affect state or federal elections. I'll try. Race, Black Lives Matter. I think that's about an eight right now. Handling of COVID-19. It's either a five or a 10, depending on how you look at it. People won't react to it specifically, but it's the undercurrent of what they think is going on in the world. Supreme Court. Uh, Two. Except in Maine. (laughs) In the Maine Senate race, I think the Supreme Court could play out with Susan Collins. Uh, other than that, it's going to be a two. How about women's rights to choose? Again, one or two specific uh, Senate races, Maine being one of them. Other than that, uh, not an overarching issue. Uh, not an issue that's going to change minds. So I would say it's, it's three or four. LGBT. Again, I, you know, remember, I look at, I take this from, from the 40,000 foot view above. For many people, individuals, that is a very important issue. In terms of affecting this election and changing this election, it's a two or a three. Okay. Lies. Hmm. A two, because you believe what you're going to believe. History of womanizing, abuse, me too. That's going to be a, a, a two or a three in terms of changing the outcome. International relations, China and Mexico. Two or three, barring something happening. Pro-business at all costs, oil and so on. That could be a six or a seven. Environment at all costs. I think before the events of the past couple of weeks, that could have been a six or a seven. I think it's down to a four or five now. Economy versus economy because of a pandemic. The economy is going to be a nine or a 10, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. Oh, well, then you got to give me a little color in there then. All right. So a lot of people are looking at uh, the economic issues in terms of overall employment rates or GDP or, uh, or stock market. And those don't matter as much, again, as perceptions of how people feel that they are doing relative to everybody else. And right now, people are feeling that relative to everybody else, they're doing okay, even if they're suffering from short-term layoffs and so forth, because they believe those layoffs are going to be short-term. If those layoffs become long-term in November, then that's going to shift the equation. Interesting. Healthcare for all. As of right now, it doesn't look like it's going to be as much of an issue as it would have been a month ago. So maybe I'll say a seven or an eight. Okay. How about presence, ability to appear presidential? Ten. And it's not that it's changing anybody's mind, but that's why people think what they do about Donald Trump right now. And as long as Joe Biden it doesn't show himself to be unpresidential, I think it's he's going to hold on to that as well. This is good, but that that is going to be extremely important. Interesting. Patrick, this has been a pleasure and uh, enlightening for me. Uh, You've been a good sport. Thank you. 
Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. Come back and see us again. Until next week, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around to find Meet Me in the Middle next week. And thank you to our producer, A.J. Mosley. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Media, media for your mind.